Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I am Annie McManus, and you are so welcome to Changes Revisited. Right, this is the first time we've ever done this. We are taking a break this week and looking back at some previous episodes, some absolute faves from the 64 episodes of Changes that already exist out there since we launched in 2020. Um, So we've heard from all sorts of people on Changes, um, people that you know, actors, comedians, authors, models, and then people that you don't know. Uh, lottery winners, activists, refugees, people who've lived through homelessness, mental health crises, all sorts of people, famous and not famous, have come on this podcast to talk about remarkable stories of change. So this week we are highlighting two really different episodes for you. First up is the icon, Khalees. Khalees is a multi-platinum Grammy-nominated artist, fashion icon, entrepreneur, mother, Cordon Bleu chef and now manager of her own farm in rural California, having given up the city life and decided she wanted something different. Talk about a big change. Khalees is known for era-defining songs like Caught Out There, Milkshake, Millionaire and so many more. She was previously very famously married to the rapper Nas. They divorced five years later, soon after the birth of her son, Knight. As she now has three children in total and a large variety of animals. And in this conversation, which was brilliant, uh, she spoke about many things. But I especially loved her perspective on motherhood, which made me howl with laughter. Uh, so that's all coming up. But let's jump in off the back of me asking Khalees. As someone who grew up in Harlem, in New York, and had lived in LA for ages, how has she changed living on a farm? I love it. Yeah. This is great. And the, the one of the things, even before we like moved out here, when we were talking about moving out here, one of my justifications was just like, being that I have been living on tour for the past two decades... It's nice to be able to come home and like check out, you know, and like right. regroup and recalibrate. I'm also very fine being by myself. So like mm. all those things factor in. So I love it. Here's the thing. I will say this. The difference between New York and L.A. is vast. The difference between L.A. and where I'm at right now, there's really not that much difference other than like what I see. Do you know what I mean? Like right. L.A. Yeah. is not like a very social city to me, whereas New York yeah. and London are. If I'm in London or if I'm in New York, I'm out all the time. Like, there's always places to go. There's always galleries and shows and bars and restaurants. There's always something to do. There's always someone to meet up with. You're always going to run into someone. L.A. is not like that. So me being out here doesn't feel like a huge change. I feel more of a change from New York to L.A. than I do from L.A. to here. I wanted to grow stuff. Like, that was, like, such a huge thing for me. I wanted to grow stuff. I wanted to, like, I felt a real sense of urgency for my kids. I wanted to be able to do it while they still cared. You know, um, before my oldest got too old to like think this was an uncool, you know. Yeah. And so we yeah. got out here just in time to where like they're now in the thick of it and they love it. And I saw the change in them. 
Um, yeah. I think more just because, you know, they were city kids and they were used to being on tour with mom. And, you know, to be honest, I probably relied on the iPad more than I wanted to admit that I did, but just the nature of like hmm. being on the move and having kids, it's like you just do what you got to do. Of You're course. like, please, dear God, stop yelling. Right. So like you, you hand them yeah. the iPad. Whereas here, like if I ask either one of them right now, like, where's your iPad? They're, they don't know. They have no idea because they're outside all day. Like, yeah playing and doing they come in filthy and they're like happy <laughs> you know it's just that yeah, i see the change yeah. in them the most I think. yeah 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 and you've got a harem of animals we do we do and we're ever growing um we have two cows we have sheep we have goats we have a bunch of chickens um we have three dogs and four cats i always say like and a partridge in a pear tree like we're literally mm. like <laughs> i'm like i've got three kids two cows <laughs> six sheep four goats like it's literally that yeah. it's it's a circus basically yeah. but it's yeah. very it's a very calm and happy peaceful circus i looked at your instagram recently and saw before when in march there was amazing videos of goats and that kind of thing but the thing that really tickled me that i loved was your new tractor and how oh, excited yeah. you were so happy. there's this boomerang <laughs> of you in the tractor like Yes. It's love. such an accomplishment. Well, because the thing is, I didn't think, well, here's the thing. So the real story is I didn't think that we needed any of the stuff that we needed. Right? Like the yeah. tractor, my husband yeah. kept being like, we need a tractor. We need a tractor. And I was like, do we? We don't need a tractor. Yeah. That just seems excessive. I was like, that's ridiculous. To the point where later we're like, oh my God, if we had a tractor, <laughs> it would be so much better. Everything would be. So now it's funny because like I tease my husband because he will literally go to the front gate in the tractor to pick up like the mail and the groceries and like he's like so why would i walk back and forth he's like i've got to i'm like okay truth be told he just wants to get on the tractor like he'll get on the tractor for anything at this point now i'm like i want everything now i'm like i want all the parts i want all the other vehicles i want all the other tools i yeah. want everything now i'm like let's go <laughs> It's going to be this fleet of farm vehicles. Oh, 100%. Yeah, literally to the point where like I had a dream and I was like, it was hot pink. And I was like, can I do that? Would they do that? I'm like, how do we make this pink? Maybe great. You've got to get yourself a pink tractor. Why not? It'd be so good. Like who wouldn't want that? It's fantastic. <laughs> oh my God. This, this podcast is about change. Like talking to you, hearing your story, even this bit of the story, you're so unafraid of it, of jumping right into it, it seems anyway. Let's talk about the first change that you think of as, as a kind of pivotal change in your life. I don't know. I think because I approach things, I don't approach them from a perspective of like, this is going to be a change. It's hard. When I was thinking about the questions, I was like, okay, well, even as a child, like what would have, what was like a pivotal change for me? When I thought about things that like were actual changes, it was only a few things that I could really think about that I felt like, wow, this was like from one thing to the next, this was definitely different. Yeah. And for me, I would say it was culinary school, having a child and moving to the farm as far as like where yeah. my focus was. Those were like the big things that I felt like, okay, these are like definitely pivotal moments for me. Mm. Culinary mm. school was game changing. You know, I think in the music industry, we have a tendency to sort of feel like the world revolves around us, right? Like, right. who would have thought, you know, and the fact that it doesn't. <laughs> you know, and so I think when I went to culinary school and I realized really tangibly that there was a whole world of people that not only didn't care about what I had spent my entire adult life doing, but just that, like, yeah. 
it was moving and groundbreaking and that I could do something else that I loved and that would fuel me as much creatively. That was, I was astounded. I was totally like mind blown that yeah. like, I was like, oh, this is, I can actually do something else. Like, mm. hmm. And then it brought me back to music in a really powerful way that I thought was surprising. You yeah. know, when I went to culinary school, I was sort of fed up with the music industry. Never music, but always. So, what was the, the context? You, you you were getting out of your deal with. Your I was label, yeah. Right? I was signed. Well, I had so it was during like the whole. Let me see. I went in two thousand seven is when I started. Right. So you were what three albums, four albums down. Yeah, and so I had been fighting to get off of Jive. I had been put on Jive. Like I didn't actually ever sign to Jive. So you know, when Arista folded, and La Reed left. They kind of just like traded us all without any like we didn't right. have any say, you know, and so it was mm-hmm. it became this like massive like slave trade essentially is what it was. That's what it was. Yeah. Um, we weren't able to be like because I would have never signed a drive and drive would have never signed me like that became abundantly mm-hmm. clear very early on in that right. relationship. Yeah. Um, so it was like a bad marriage, you know, it's like everyone's miserable yeah. and yet we're stuck, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I had been fighting for about four years from 2003 end of 2003 to about 2007, I had been actively trying to get off of my label. Mm. And when I finally got the call saying, hey, you've been released, I'd spent years trying to get off. So I had no plan for what happened once I actually got off. I was just like, right. oh, damn, okay. Yeah. Now what? Yeah. I have no, like, what am I supposed to do? I'd been signed my entire adult life, you know? And, like, I signed when I was 17, so to now be 27 and, like, right. huh, Interesting. So 10 years in. What does one do? <laughs> when yeah. like, yeah, I literally yeah. felt like, oh. Yeah. yeah. So that was a huge change because my entire life had been music industry, music business centered, you know, that's all I knew. And when I decided to go to culinary school and it was just a whole, it was a whole new thing. It was awesome. And I think just even any, you know, learning as an adult is completely different anyway. Being in school as an adult is a totally different experience. Um having to answer to authority and all of these things that I had not been doing for all that time. <laughs> and, and being, I presume, being in a class of other people. Yeah, no, everything. Like... And being part of a group. You know, I've been a solo artist you in super every famous. possible way. Were you, like, were, were people aware? Well, that was the other like, thing, was that, like, yeah, no, fully. Like, Bossy had just come out. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah, God. it was that. And then I was in school. I was genuinely, like, nervous. Like, oh, God. Mm. Because, you know, if, if I'm honest, like, you, you, I've been living a life where everyone placates to me, and I know that. And, of course. you know, like, everyone around me works for me. I mean, that's just the, yeah. that's what it is. You know, it's like, there's no way around that. Um, and here I was now in school, and that's a completely different thing, you know? And, like, I had a schedule that I did not make or approve. And it's like, you need to wow. be there or else you fail. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, and kind of all these things. And then also really wanting to... I really wanted to be there and yeah. I wanted to succeed and I wanted to be taken seriously. I felt the need to like overly compensate, I think, and I needed to work really hard because I think initially they felt like probably, you know, she's going to expect special treatment or right. is she really any good or does she deserve to be here? Um, kind of like all that stuff. And so I had to work really hard, you know, and mm. and I did and I ended up, doing really well and even at the end of it like some of my chefs they were like we just wanted to they pulled me aside and they were kind of just like congratulations like we didn't we were, we were betting against you <laughs> you know like yeah, yeah. we thought we were gonna have to deal with this like I guess diva or whatever I hate that term but like that's sort of like yeah. what they were expecting and 
I'm good at this and I love it. And I do work really hard. And I think people, there's a misconception that like as artists, we don't work hard. And I think the yeah. good ones really do. Um, sure. And so I think there was a lot of like kind of stereotypes to break and to remold and model. How did becoming a mother change you at the time? Because you were in the middle of all this then, I presume. Yeah, so I had my oldest in 2009. I mean, it's game-changing. Game-changing, right? Like, I have friends who were always broody. You know, like, they always wanted babies. And, like, yeah. I wasn't I wasn't her. Like, I just was not that person. My life was yeah. everything I wanted it to be. I was traveling. I was single. I was like, this is great. Everything's fantastic. So, for me, I didn't have that moment where I was like, I need to have a child. Like, it just, yeah. you know, that that didn't happen. So, when I had him... I was always very clear about the kind of parent that I didn't want to be. Now, not that I had any clue about the kind of parent that I wanted to be or that I would end up being, but that, like, I knew what I didn't want to be. And so... And what was that? I didn't want... Because I loved my life so much, and I feel like all the chicks who had kids changed so much that they there was, like, always some sort of resentment or some sort of, like... Yeah. Coulda, shoulda, woulda. Kind of, yeah, yeah, like, mm. I didn't want that. Mm. So... I packed that little sucker up and he's been on tour with me ever since. You know, like I, I didn't stop. Literally nothing stopped. I shot a video three months after he was born. Um, we shot a cappella. I went on tour. I toured all over the world with him in tow and I didn't stop. I literally didn't stop. It made me so proud and so grateful. It made me realize what, what strength we have as women, um, mm. how it's such a farce that we've been taught anything else. As much as I've always been outspoken, I didn't realize how strong I was until I had him. I didn't realize how truly, genuinely powerful I was um, and how monumental we are as women in general. We model and build the world. And somehow we've allowed people to tell us that that's not the case, which is outrageous. Yeah. And I think, yeah, all of these things. I had a moment, you know, I was going through a divorce and I had a moment where I was pregnant. And I remember just thinking to myself, huh, the world has to be as it is. The world has to be male dominated because if we completely dominated everything there would be zero balance there'd be no chance for balance we create life when you hold life in your body you have to let them think that they're in charge it's like knock yourself out i make people so like <laughs> like i'm like you could literally get a nobel peace prize you could solve world hunger and still you will not hold life in your actual being that's gay i was like oh mic drop i was like oh i'm good i was like okay i make people I was like, I multiply. I just multiplied. Like, you see, I'm here and now there's more of me. There's more of me right there. That's how I felt. I literally was like, oh, I do this. Okay. I felt like a beast. I was like, yo, I was unstoppable. I felt unstoppable. I felt sexier, smarter, stronger, braver yeah. than I could have ever felt. And I think that, like, for me was so, I came from a really bad marriage. And then the fact that I was now a single mom, whereas people were like, oh, my God, it's got to be so crazy. And I was like, I actually prefer this. This is awesome. I was like, this is great. Like, I really felt like I am a woman, hear me roar, in every possible way, in the best possible way. I really felt empowered and um, I felt a real sense of, like, duty and responsibility. Like, I'm like, oh, you're going to be a man. Okay, well, let's start. We're going to learn. We're going to learn this. Let's talk about this. Yeah. And so I deal with my kids very much that way. I'm like, I genuinely believe that, like, we are to raise people we want to hang out with. I feel like if we think more like that, we would parent different. You know what I mean? It's like... I want to like you just because your mind doesn't mean that it just automatically means I like you. I want you to have values and thoughts and 
to be able to express yourself creatively and and mentally and articulate things so we can have a real conversation. My goal is not to like, you know, create robots and for, like I want to like you. I want to like you. I want to hang out with you. You're my people, right? So like that was changing for me because I I look, I didn't have a lot of great my mom is a great example. But other okay. than my mom, I don't feel like I had a bunch of great examples of women who were who were outwardly talking about doing it. Not that they weren't doing it, but just that they yeah. weren't sharing it with me. You know, like you can do this and you don't lose yourself in it. And it should enhance you as opposed to diminish you. You know, and I think that like because yeah. as women we inherently sacrifice more than men do as far as our families go. I think if you look at it from a strength perspective, be, I sacrifice because I can, not because mm-hmm. someone expects me to. I think mm-hmm. it changes and skews how we raise our kids and how we look at motherhood. And it was one of the best experiences of my life. I now have three kids and I love being a mom so much because it makes me so much more poignant about the kind of artist that I am and the right. kind of person that I am. Like I want them to see mom works hard. Mom loves what she does. It's not yeah. always easy, but you know, I hustle and I grind and I love it and I'm good at it. And like, I want them to see that. Do you know what I mean? Like I want them to find women like that. Like that's ideally like what I want for my kids. And so it's fun. Like parenting is fun when you think of it from that perspective, you know, it's like, I'm not trying to beat stuff into you. I want you to make decisions I want you to think. I want you to be critical thinkers. I want you to love life because I love my life. You know, like I, I genuinely am like a very content person. And so yeah. like motherhood for me, I had no idea though. Had you asked me the year before, I'd have been like, eh, yeah, I guess, you know, it's okay. I have some kids. I had no idea what would come. I had no idea that it would make me better, that it would make me a better artist, that it would make me more yeah. mindful human. Empathy is not something that I like... I had to learn empathy. I learned empathy through motherhood, honestly. Right. Every asshole has a mom, right? Like, that's what it kind of made me think about. Like, you meet guys sometimes you're like, ugh, he has a mom. Someone loves him and puts energy into him and sacrifice for him. And so it makes you just a little bit like, okay. Lol, every asshole has a mom. It's good. It's good to think of that. Thank you so much to Khalees for never holding back, for always speaking whatever is on your mind and for being so fun and vibrant and just inspiring as a woman. Since our conversation back in January 2021, Khalees released her new single Midnight Snacks and a collab with Koji Radical. She's recently announced on her Instagram that she's going to be setting up a recording studio on the farm. Hopefully this means more music. We're not sure if she got the pink tractor yet. Still waiting for that photo. And she also has her own business called Bounty and Full, which makes and sells organic culinary and beauty products. So yeah, Khalees, still smart in life. The second episode we are revisiting today in Changes Revisited is that of Larch Maxi. Larch is a former sustainability lecturer who has been a climate change activist since the 90s and is now part of Extinction Rebellion. I spoke to Larch in February 2021 as he and a small group of other protesters occupied underground tunnels outside Euston Station in central London, protesting against the high-speed rail project HS2 that was then scheduled to build a rail track from London to Birmingham in Phase 1 and then from Birmingham up to Manchester and Leeds in Phase 2. When I spoke to Larch, the tunnels had garnered huge media attention and the government had said that the cost of tackling these climate activists at HS2 sites had hit nearly 50 million. The bailiffs were trying to evict Larch and the others, one of whom was Larch's son, and they were underground for 27 days in total. 
When I spoke to Larch, he was on day 18 of living in these tiny claustrophobic tunnels just off the Euston Road in London. It was minus three degrees. They'd lost their case in the High Court for the right to protest. And the emotion of the journey is so audible. And it's a conversation that has stuck with me forever. I'll never forget it because it felt so vital in that moment to be speaking to this man who was putting his life on the line and so sincere and heartfelt and passionate about this cause of trying to stop climate change and going to these extreme measures of standing in the way of control to do it. But you could just hear the toll that it was taking on him. It was just such a good insight into what life as a kind of extreme direct action activist is really like. So let's do it. Let's hear from Large Maxi. I want you to describe where you are. What can you see? Um, get, get, let, let us kind of get a feel of, of what it's like down there. Yeah, so I'm like 10 foot underground at the bottom of a down shaft. So, uh, and I'm with my head sticking out of our tunnel. As I look out and up, there is loads of carpentry all around me. The shoring that the bailiffs have done. First of all, they reinforced our down shaft and made that quite a tight size. So then they had to dig another separate down shaft. So there's a big space well say big it's like two and a half meters long and then one little area is about half a meter square and then the rest of it opens out to a meter by two meters sort of area right and then that goes up 10 foot to uh up top where there's some bright light shining down on me and they've got two uh tripods set up sort of winches so if they if they get the opportunity they can put one of us in a harness and pull us up and they are um but and they're the bailiffs. That, yeah, so bailiffs. HS2 are carrying out this eviction and they use contractors to do that. So in this case, they're employing the National Eviction Team, which is a, a group of, or part of the High Court Enforcement Group Limited. Right. And Large, how are you How are you living down there? Just the very practical, pragmatic ways of living. How are you eating, drinking, bathing, going to the bathroom, toilet? Like, how is it working down there for you to stay there for 18 days and still be in good spirits? Yeah, so we've we've basically we've got provisions, so we're managing to keep going on what we've got. Uh, we've got um, yeah, water and food down here, so it's very well. It's fairly basic. It's certainly, we're we're kind of rationing ourselves, um, but we've got you know a number of different tins and jars and things. So we've we've opened some pickles recently, which is really nice because then you can mix a little bit of beet, pickled beetroot in with your beans or whatever yeah. and make it a bit more flavorful we've got olives and sun-dried tomatoes would you believe um yeah. it's a real treat um we've got some chocolate and stuff as well so we're not entirely deprived but we haven't had like a hot meal for 18 days the meals are basic but really like you just so enjoy your food when you when you don't eat much you really enjoy what you do get and i feel like your body just absorbs all the nutrients from when you do eat uh, and it feels actually you're on the edge of hunger all the time but actually feel quite healthy uh through that and then toilet, yeah, we pee in bottles um, and women use like a shiwi or a funnel. And then um, we also pee in poo bags, like doggy bags, and then bag that up and pass that out. So all that yeah. goes out to the to the very kind bailiffs who take that away. <laughs> right. And how are you physically? Like, uh, are, are, you in, are you in good health? And is everyone down there in good health? Yeah, we're all in good health, as I said, and good spirits. So... Um, 
few of us picked up a, a couple of injuries along the way. A little, like you know, at one point, a bailiff jumped down our down shaft and tried to fill in uh, the lock on at the bottom with expanding foam, and I managed to get my arm in the lock on. Um, but in, in that sort of tussle, I got a bit of a scratch on my arm. And mm. a bit of what's the lock on, Large? A lock on is something you sink in the ground. Like you, well, it's a, it's basically a, a tube generally that you put your arm in and clip yourself to so it has a bar or, or a fixed piece in the tube that you, you, fit, you lock yourself to so you have like a bracelet on of some sort and you clip yourself to the lock on um, and then you can have all sorts of variations on that and elaborations on that this one was sunk in the ground at the bottom of the down shaft it was an, a concrete multi-layered arm tube so it's got concrete steel aluminium etc that was sunk in to a load of concrete reinforced with rebar and old tent poles that I reclaimed and then that was all inside a, a safe that I skipped like the, got the door off the safe but the rest of it made a really strong box so that took them oh, 30 about 30 hours to get laser out of that but yeah anyway so that was a little, a little incident where I got a little injury and um, a few little things like that but no, nothing major and everything so far has gone fine everyone's fit healthy and, and well and as I said in, in really good spirits and laser one of the people that was down there with you now not there so how many people are left down there with you in the tunnels and can you talk me through who is who who who's there yeah so there's uh, seven of us down here now um, in two tunnels um, Scotty and another person are in, in one tunnel and then uh, there's five of us in this main tunnel Blue is one of those. She's 18. And Blue um, is Laser's sister, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. She's also an author. She's an incredible activist. She's on permanent school strike, so she's given up school to um, to be doing this full-time. And she's, yeah, just an incredible, inspiring activist and person. And then there's Nemo, who's 22. She just turned 22 and was, spent her 22nd birthday helping <laughs> create these tunnels, uh, which is pretty impressive commitment. And then uh, there's Dan and his son Rory. Um, so Dan is uh, also known as Swampy. Uh, and then there's Rory, his 16-year-old son. And it was all Rory's idea. Like Rory's like saw the tunnel and was like, yeah, I really want to come down here for the eviction. And persuaded yeah. Dan to come down and join him. Dan uh, sort of avoided tunnels for years because he knew once he did it, he'd get the bug. Uh, but he's got <laughs> the bug again now. <laughs> I'm interested a bit more in just kind of how your life as a child shaped who you are today. You know, you seem someone who is so um, uh, absolute in your convictions, you know, just so willing to give everything of yourself in everything I've seen of you. Um, and I'm wondering, like, just how you how you are shaped to be that person as an adult. Um, you talked a, a little bit in, in the previous answers you gave us for the questions about going through some major operations as a kid. What was all that about? Oh, um, I mean, I had a... I fractured my skull when I was a, a kid playing football. Um, I, I did karate and uh, got kicked in the balls and had twisted testicles and had to get them <laughs> pinned down. Um, so those are the two operations. Uh, I broke loads of bones. Yeah, I, was, I was very active as a kid. Broke 13 bones, I think, between the age of... Uh, what was it? Nine and thirteen, wow. or something like that. So, wow. uh, yeah. So I threw myself into everything. Yeah, and um, really loved sports, and I still do. Very, always been very active. Um, and do you look back at your childhood fondly? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, the, the the cornerstone of it is, you know, two two amazing parents. You know. Yeah. 
we didn't have a lot growing up, but hello, can yeah, you hear me? Yeah, I, I can, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we didn't have a lot growing up, but um, I realised that I have a really privileged childhood in the sense that I had unconditional yeah. love. So that gave me the freedom. Unconditional love from, from my yeah. parents. And so that gave me the freedom to explore, you know, and throw myself into things. And, I've, you know, I'm 48, so I've spent a lot of time living and being with different people and different groups and organisations and learnt so much about and, and studied, you know, people and how people work. And I just see that, I see so many times how people are held back because they ha they've got this innate fear of the world or of themselves or other people or, you know, of whatever, you know, and I'm, I've always, because um, I've got that grounding in, 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 you know, feeling safe in the world. Mm. I feel like that's been a vital part of me being able to explore and be myself and they just give me complete permission to be who I am and complete support in, in the choices that I make. You mentioned in your answer that you had to fight off bullies as well as a kid. Oh, to fight off bullies, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that was, the, you know, it was, a, it was a... I was born in Kettering, which is a small town in in Northamptonshire, you know, and it was rough when I was growing up and, you know, I remember I was seven, you know, going home crying to, to my, lunchtime to my <coughs> mum because the kid was trying to bully, you know, a couple of years older than me, trying to bully me. And, um, you know, after a few days, my uncle was around and I said, look, what, what should he do? And, and uh, yeah, my uncle said, well, do you think do you think you could you know stand up to yourself? And I said yeah. So, so next time he tried to bully me, I just you know <laughs> I um I hit him and I think I ran <laughs> I ran home crying <laughs> even though I'd hit him. But um, that was you know I was seven, so that was a young sort of experience. And yeah, there's a few times the, the the sort of last fight I ever got in was. I'd started doing karate at that point, so I was much more confident in my body and physically. And a guy was picking on me again, a year older, and I'd got a broken collarbone from playing rugby. And so there's this kid who's a year older than me picking on me and ended up starting this fight with me. And there's all the kids in the playground, of course, supporting me because I'm younger and injured, you know. But uh, I managed to hold my own, and um, yeah, that was sort of. You know, knowing that I could, you know, like, unfortunately, when you know faced with bullies, sometimes you have to, you have to fight back. Um, and I think that's kind of <laughs> actually what we're doing now. You know, like this government um, and HS2 are good examples of using bullying tactics. You know, they've they've not kept us safe. They've put us in danger, and we're having to fight back. And and, and now we're fighting back with. You know, peaceful means you know, uh, non-violence because mm. uh, that you know at this point seems to be the most effective way of trying to bring about the change Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. 
They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What would you say to the people who might be listening to this thinking... You know, why can't you be doing this in a democratic way? Think of the amount of millions of pounds it's cost the council and the government in order to have you guys there and keep you safe. As you're saying, there's mine uh, rescue teams, there's all sorts of bailiffs. And, you know, for, for those people who are like, you know, why are you costing the government more money? You know, why can't you do this in a democratic way? What would you say? Well, this is what I've studied for 25 years. This is exactly what I've studied. And the re unfortunately, the, the democratic, you know, we, we've got a very weak, emaciated form of democracy. What we need is, is direct democracy, where people really directly shape the decisions, and we need deliberative democracy, where the people shaping those decisions have the information at their disposal. When we've got a direct, deliberative democracy, then we have a democracy capable of dealing with this crisis. What we've got at the moment is an emaciated corrupt form of democracy which has led to this terrible circumstance we're in now so I think if I, I understand we get that I get that all the time people say oh you know like you say like we get a judge saying oh parliament voted for HS2 well then you you scratch the surface and you look the parliament voted for a scheme that was a fraction of the cost of what HS2 is going to cost they did that without all the information about how destructive it's going to be. They did that before we had a climate and ecological emergency and before we were in a COVID pandemic. And every community that was consulted said no, and they were road roughshod over. So you start to unpick what it means, this democrat, supposedly democratic process, and it fails us. HS2 is a great example of what's wrong with our democracy. But it's not just HS2. It's you, you can look at the road programme that I mentioned earlier, the fact that that's being promoted supposedly by our democracy in a, in a time when mm. that's going to, you know, accelerate our, our, our death, potentially, you know. So the, there's a fundamental principle in, in political science, which is that, you know, we give away some of our power to the government in order for the government to keep us safe. You know, this is the basic social contract that Hobbes based political science on. Modern, modern democracy with a modern state and that social contract has been broken by our government they have not kept us safe they have known and they have lied to us and misled us and allowed us to get into this situation and that same government system that has created this crisis is not capable of getting us out of it so that's why we need this climate and ecological emergency bill and a citizens assembly to get us out of this which is direct democracy which is deliberative democracy ordinary people with all the information at their disposal selected like you have a jury selection so it's it's across the board it represents every ordinary people that that is capable of getting us out of it if if a, if we had a citizens assembly looking at the future of hs2 i would come out of this tunnel you know if i, I don't even need the government to say yeah we're going to cancel hs2 all i need is a genuine process that to look at it <clears throat> properly 
like a citizen, mm. a citizens' assembly. So I'm all for democracy, uh, but I'm unfortunately we don't have a, a, a democracy that's fit for purpose yet in this country. Do you think that you have more power now in 2021 to affect change? than you have had in the past. I'm just conscious of Swampy, you know, who's in there, who's, you know, kind of um, the most well-known activist in, in our country. And he's he's been through decades, as you say, of, of activism. And I'm interested that even though technology has evolved so much and, you know, we're in this world, uh, like, you know, where every way that we communicate it has changed, it's still this very basic physical act of literally standing, or in your guy's case, crawling or lying in the way of control that is actually, seems to be the most effective. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a yes and yes and no, really. So, yeah, I, I agree, absolutely. It's a really um, great question. It's absolutely true that the d- d- digital world only takes us so far virtual reality is only going to take us so far we still need to grow food we still need to breathe air and drink water um, and we have bodies that you know exist in a real environment and so uh, putting our bodies on the line digging these tunnels that that's yeah is still the act that's made all the difference but the you know the context now is different you know like i can have this conversation with you whilst in the tunnel Swampy couldn't do yeah. that back in the 90s, you know. Um, so the opportunities are there for us now to, to turn this emergency around. You know, we've got social media. We've got this potential, you know, control or access to media channels that we didn't have before. And, and so let's use that, you know. Um, but we really need to be, like, getting on the case with using it because otherwise, like, you know, the corporate control of that all of those media streams is also happening and so we need to be very aware of that and trying to counter that as we go. Larch, when all this is over and you come out of the tunnel eventually, what what does life look for, look like for you? Like, How do you live your normal life at the moment with no, no job, no income? Well, I'm working flat out. I'm working harder than I ever have. Um, you know, I'm often doing 18-hour days. Sometimes I'd like do a 36-hour shift where I just keep going until I'm going. Oh, I'm ready to sleep now. I'm pouring my every, literally every waking moment into this. You know, and so that will carry on. You know, I after, immediately after this, I will get arrested. I will go probably to court uh, very briefly, like for a day or two, and and then I'll be released. And then I'll be doing. Hopefully, we'll do loads of media work. And at some point, I'll go and see my partner because I've not seen her for you know since December. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll see my my daughter and my son. And, and but my son and I were on the phone till like one thirty this morning, uh, planning because <laughs> he's like he's so like feeling frustrated that he's not down here that he's he was up a tree but he got evicted from it. I mean, he bless him, he held out longer than you know anyone else up the trees, but he's you know feeling like well, I wanna I wanna be like. Yeah, wants to help, wants to do more. So, we've already started planning some plans of what we do next. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely going to be more of the same until you know it has to be more of the same until we get the changes needed. And the key is getting more people involved. There you go, Larch Maxi. And you may already know, hearing this now, that the planned HS2 route from Manchester to Leeds was, in fact, scrapped. 
we reached out to Larch to see how he was now and what he's been up to since. He was delighted that the action he took received international coverage and he was also very happy that the Leeds leg was cancelled of HS2. But he's very confident still that HS2 as a full thing will be cancelled. After he was evicted from the tunnels, he set up another camp and took part in an action on a HS2 office in London with a fellow activist. That involved him occupying the roof of the building, spray painting the building pink with the words Citizens Assemblies Now. Uh, What he meant by that was to try and call attention to the desire for these assemblies to be used as part of our democracy. They would consist of between 50 to 500 ordinary people from all walks of life making decisions about how the UK should meet climate change change targets. Larch was arrested and held on remand for 15 days in prison before being placed on a tag for six months. He then agreed not to disrupt the work of HS2 to stop his tag being imposed for longer. He wrote an article in the Times, which we will include in the show notes, about being punished for protesting peacefully. And he's now due to have a trial with a jury in November for criminal damage, but believes he will be cleared as over 80% of people in the UK see the climate crisis as the greatest emergency faced in the world. He's been very busy supporting protesters as part of the Just Stop Oil Coalition, who entered a network of three underground tunnels blocking access to the Navigator and Grey's oil terminals, the UK's largest. Their demand is that the UK government stops new oil and gas projects, no new fossil fuel licences at all. Larch's son has just given up his job to become a full-time campaigner. And I have no doubt we will see and hear more of Larch and the Extinction Rebellion crew as they continue in their direct action protesting for change. If you want to find out more about Just Stop Oil and HS2 Rebellion, we'll put links in the show notes. Next week, we are back with a brand new episode as we step into May and Deaf Awareness Week with actor and Strictly Come Dancing winner Rose Ailing Ellis. Deaf since birth, she has been a fundamental part of changing public perceptions of what deaf people can achieve and is now affecting change by supporting the British Sign Language Bill. Um, So yeah, really excited to have our first ever deaf guest, Rose Ailing Ellis, on Changes next week. You're going to learn a lot and Rose is an absolute dreamboat as well. She'll charm the pants off you. All right. This episode of Changes was produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. Thank you so much. Take care.